the thing about it, she said, why are they destroying our city? And I said, if, what if you were trying to get mommy and daddy's attention and we weren't paying attention to you, what would you do? And she's like, well, I would talk louder. I'm like, what if we still didn't listen to you? She was like, I would scream. And I was like, what if we still didn't listen? She was like, I would be really sad. I would start crying. And I was like, I know. And what if we still didn't listen? I'm like, so what if it went on all day long and we just didn't listen to you? Mm-hmm. She was like, I would be so upset. I would, I don't know. And I was like, would you throw a fit, a tantrum? She's like, yeah, I probably would. I'd probably throw my toys at you. And I was like, there it is. that's kind of what happened. And then we would notice you because you would be making a mess. And we'd say, Sydney, Sydney, what's wrong? And we would stand with you and try to calm you down and listen to you. Mm-hmm. So I said, that's kind of what happened with black people around the city. Definitely the first night. And um, people, I think, realized what was going on finally and that what Black Lives Matter means. And they were like, all right, you're right. We stand with you. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. All right, guys, with everything going on in the world today, I feel like it is extremely important that I use this platform of the Pursuing Health podcast to start holding some space for a discussion about racism. As I'm sure it has for many of you, the past few weeks have really made me think critically about the ways in which I personally have failed to acknowledge the role that I can play when it comes to fighting against systemic racism, and especially its impact on health, which is obviously my passion and our focus here on the podcast. Yes, it's super uncomfortable, and yes, I think the fear of saying something wrong or feeling unqualified to say anything is part of what has held me back in the past, but I now realize that by not talking about this at all, I've been doing a bigger disservice. I realize that over the past five years that I've been hosting the podcast, nearly all of my guests have had white skin. Yes, you could argue that the CrossFit community and the majority of CrossFit Games competitors are white, but that's really no excuse. There are plenty of Black voices in the space of CrossFit, fitness, medicine, and health that need to be amplified, and I will continue to do so moving forward. So today, I'm starting this conversation here on the podcast by sitting down with one of my former CrossFit Games competitors, Deb Cordner-Carson. Deb is a three-time CrossFit Games athlete who competed from 2011 through 2013, and she's well known for her Spirit of the Games win after conquering her fear of open water swimming in 2012. She has a background in gymnastics, and she was a Division I sprinter in college at the University of Northern Iowa. And during her collegiate career, she developed a condition called lymphedema, which caused swelling in her left leg that ultimately resulted after she'd had a groin muscle injury. Although she was told not to run after this, she eventually found CrossFit and rose to the top of the field as a multi-year games athlete. Since her CrossFit Games career, she's become the mother of two beautiful girls and even made an impressive return to competition in 2015, finishing 15th at regionals just nine months after giving birth to her first. In recent months, Deb has faced new unanticipated challenges, including a miscarriage, followed by the diagnosis of a rare cancer called choriocarcinoma, for which she is currently undergoing chemotherapy, 
all of this happening during the COVID-19 pandemic. Compound that by recent events of police brutality in her own city of Minneapolis, and it's no surprise that, as she says, she has no more bandwidth. It did feel strange for me to reach out to Deb to speak on the podcast at this time just because of recent events. I mean, after all, why had I never reached out to her to be on the podcast before this? But I was glad that she was willing to have this conversation with me and share her voice and her experience. After all, we have to start somewhere. This is only the beginning, and I can promise you that we will continue to feature a more diverse group of guests and dig deeper into the topics of race and social determinants of health, because after all, racism is a public health issue that is so intertwined with allowing everyone the opportunity to pursue health, as we always talk about here. Before we dive into the episode, we do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So now let's get started with the episode. All right. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very, very grateful to be here today with Deb Corner Carson. Um, I think, you know, we were just starting to talk before we, we hit record and a lot of good conversation already coming up. Um, you know, obviously right now there's no way you're going through a lot of different things in your life um, and with recent events. Could you start by just trying to walk us through what has been going on in your life for the past couple of months? Um, if you can, just shed, just to shed light on the things you've been going through and you know, the emotions that have been coming up for you? Sure. Um, I can start with personally, I've had some health issues. Um, my husband and I, um, decided to expand our family and we were so happy that we found out we were pregnant around Christmas. And, um, I've had a few miscarriages in my past. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm always in tune with how my body is when I'm pregnant, looking for any signs. Um, I definitely felt some signs early on, but um, things were going well until uh, they weren't. And we suffered a miscarriage early January of this year, um, which was pretty devastating because, I mean, we weren't sure if we were going to try again. We're older um, and just there's many reasons when you get older why you wouldn't know if you can try it um, or if you should. Um, but I was kind of mourning that miscarriage and um, and everything that comes with it. It's still hard. It doesn't matter when it comes. But I um, I noticed that I wasn't getting my menstrual cycle um, mm -hmm. around early April, and um, by no means. Uh, were we trying again? I was too soon after a miscarriage and COVID-19 had just blown up. Mm -hmm. um, I was not trying to be pregnant in a pandemic. I didn't know what was going on with the world and how I would even have a doctor's appointment. I didn't want to complicate things, obviously. So we were not trying to have uh, another child at the time um, when I had missed my period, but I took a pregnancy test anyways, and it came out positive. And so... Mm -hmm. I was very excited, um, confused um, for some reasons um, that are obvious. I, um, but I was excited. I it was it was definitely possible that I was pregnant. So I went with it. 
I made my appointments, which were mostly virtual um, because of the COVID-19. And then I had like set up some ultrasounds as well that would just be me alone. Um, but things didn't feel right again. And I knew something was up, but I never considered what was possible with this. And so I did have my blood uh, HCG levels drawn, which if you don't know, HCG levels is basically the, the, um, the hormone that tells you you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's what shows up positive on a pregnancy test. Um, by all means, if, if you have a positive pregnancy test and your HCG levels are high enough, it means you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. Can anyone think anything different? And um, so when I went to the doctor um, after my HCG levels were drawn, I, oh, she called, she called me in because they were so high. And mm -hmm. so we did the ultrasound and we did a consultation and she said, you might have something called gestational trypoblastic disease, but not many women have this. Don't worry yet. We'll do some more tests. Long story short, yeah, I have it. And uh, I looked into it more. And it's a type of, I guess the best way I can describe it is pregnancy cancer. Whereas I did have a miscarriage, I did have a DNC and everything went down to normal as far as my hormone levels. They tracked that all the way back down to normal levels. And then sometime from when it was down to normal till April, um, some cells, I don't know how to explain this in layman's terms, you have a doctor, but some cells <laughs> just started to produce a placenta-like tumor in my uterus. That's perfect, yeah. So, um, and it's a fast-growing tumor. It can leave your uterus, and this way, this cancer more, it doesn't attack cells as much as it attacks organs. So, like, it will grow on in my uterus. If it lose, leaves my uterus, it usually goes to the lungs first, attacks the brains, kidneys, I mean, brains, we have one brain, um, but um, yeah, and, and hearing all of that was hard um, because I was still mourning my miscarriage. Yeah. And in a way, it's like I had to, I, I almost was mad at myself for trying. Really? I didn't try for that third baby. I wouldn't be in this position. So it's a really weird position to be in where you, you've, you want to mourn that baby that didn't make it, mm -hmm. but I also resent it. And that's not where I want to, it, it was too hard for me to think of it that way. So I had to just, I know this happened because of, um, this happens to some women after miscarriages. It happens to some women after an abortion. It happens to some women like years after having kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and it happened to me after a miscarriage and, um, or a molar pregnancy is another way that some women have it happen. Um, but here I am. I'm now. I have done two cycles of chemo, um, so it's it's uh, June June fourth, and I mean I have no idea. They basically track my HCG levels um, down to normal, which is anywhere from five and below. Mm -hmm. And I started at one hundred and twenty four thousand. Wow. So it's like funny when I talk to my husband. I'm like, so I'm at one hundred twenty four thousand. I'm trying to get to five, like literally the number five. That's like a, a long road. It's a long road and it's, it's hard to believe. And I, I just never have heard of it before. Yeah. And, um, it's a lot like I'm that CrossFitter that had something called lymphedema that mm -hmm. made it to the CrossFit games. And so then I had a stage to say, Hey, I have this thing on my leg called lymphedema that no one's heard of. Mm -hmm. But I'm the poster child for things that no one's heard of. Um, <laughs> 
So that's a good way to look at it. What? So I guess that's a good way to look at it. It's it's yeah. I'm like I I I I feel like I don't have enough in me to take care of everything that's going on, um, including my children. Um, But just because uh, one of them is homeschooled and I'm the I'm the teacher, and there was just a lot going on. Wow. Um, she's only homeschooled because of COVID. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, um, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I, I don't have enough bandwidth for everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so the only way I can attack it is just taking it a day at a time. And, um, I just feel like things just keep piling on and, you know, and it's interesting when I did get diagnosed, some people reached out to me and, they're like, you're the strongest person I know. If anyone can tackle this, you do, you can. And um, it's really nice that sentiment that people feel that way about me. I don't know if it's connected to my physical strength, and that's fine if it is. I, I encourage the positivity, of course. But mm-hmm. um, it's not like I didn't throw a fit and cry with my husband. It's not like I didn't wonder why me. It's not like I was scared of all the things that I shouldn't worry about, like losing my hair and how tired I'd be or what kind of side effects I'm going to get from this chemo or what if this chemo doesn't work for me and I have to go to something stronger and what if this takes more than a year, which it will, but um, just a lot of crying. Mm -hmm. I'm not always strong. I don't think any human is. And, but at the end of releasing I do have a tendency to be able to focus very hard on tasks, many tasks at hand. And I mean, it's how I manage my lymphedema for the past 19 years. I've had this and I, I remember my life before it. And um, it's, I still have to, even after all these years, focus on the task at hand when I'm taking care of my leg. So I don't lose it because mm-hmm. it can be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same thing with this is it's a lot of writing down my appointments cause there's many of them and writing down any symptoms I might have to, to talk to my doctor about any questions I might have in my next appointment and just what can I do in this moment to get to the next moment? Um, instead of really sitting in that moment and feeling the feelings of how I feel about what's happening to me right now. Mm-hmm. So. I do give myself space to release. Um, I do now, after 40 years of my life, have a therapist. Um, I've never had one before, but I think it's long overdue given a lot of the things that are going on. And yeah, I I do have a a space to clear out my mental craziness that's going on so that I can actually physically do the things I need to do to get better. Mm -hmm. So. But it sounds like, you know, everyone obviously copes with difficult things in different ways, but it sounds like that's a a very healthy way of coping, you know, like getting all the emotions out, but then breaking it down into ways that you can manage kind of putting one foot in front of the other every day. Yeah. I I can credit CrossFit with that, competing in CrossFit. Mm -hmm. And I know that you can, you know how stressful it is and it was back then with the regionals and so much hanging on you know, one event. Um, and it was hard for me to manage that emotionally. And I remember talking to someone and they said, what can you do 
and each moment to, to get yourself farther in a workout or to complete a task. And I would always bring it back down to the micro level of a workout or, you know, how fast can I walk to the next bar or, you know, how soon can I get something on my chest to get going or how just, just attacking many goals as you go through um, is how I would get through the gravity of the situation of trying to make it to the CrossFit games and then being at the CrossFit games. Yeah. Um, so I've never forgotten that. I suppose it definitely has stayed with me in my, now my real life. So. Oh, absolutely. That kind of one step at a time. Because if you think about the whole thing at once, it's way too overwhelming. Yep. Okay. So, you know, you're going through way more than any other person can imagine, you, you know, through all through this COVID pandemic as well, making things much more difficult. And then, you know, the events in Minneapolis happened, the death of George Floyd and mm-hmm. everything following. I mean, how, what were your initial kind of reactions when you heard about everything that was going on? Honestly, when, when I first heard about everything going on, um, I, saw, I saw the video on an Instagram um, channel that I follow, but I couldn't watch the whole thing. Um, and then right away, one of my best friends, uh, texted me and then we group texted with another friend and we talked about it for quite some time. Um, they were outraged. So was I, I knew what the video was. Um, I read the comments, I read the description under the video and I was sad to see that it happened in Minneapolis. I was just sad to see that it happened at all, but it was even more jarring to see that it happened in Minneapolis. All of my friends are from Minneapolis. Um, They don't all live here anymore, but we were all talking about it. And the first thing that we said was, you know, we hope that they're arrested. You know, it wasn't, we hope that those police officers are fired. We wanted them to be arrested. We knew that watching somebody else take someone else's life um, for no, apparent reason. There was no threat on his own life. There was no threat on anyone else's life. He wasn't causing any harm. It was obviously a hundred percent wrong. Now the video itself, um, I, like I said, I, I never watched it all the way through. Um, honestly, I, I take issue. I have like issue with, with videos like this because I feel like there's been through the years, so many videos of black people being killed. Um, and I feel like in a way on one side, it almost desensitize, desensitizes people's view on a black life almost if you consistently see them being killed on camera. Um, I can't watch it. I can't watch George Floyd's last breath. I can't watch his last words. I can't watch him crying for his mom. I cannot, I could not watch that. I will not watch it. But on the other hand, I understand that if the video didn't exist, we wouldn't even be in the position to convict those police officers for the wrongdoing. Because what tends to happen when stuff like this comes out is people start to attack the character or whatever they can find of the black individual who is, who is dead. Um, to, to almost make it seem as though, oh, because they weren't a good person or because they've had some things happen in their past, they don't deserve any redemption. And of course, they, we shouldn't care if they die. I've never been, I've never subscribed to that for any, any soul. 
Nobody deserves to die if they've done nothing wrong to anyone else, if they've literally done nothing wrong. And so um, this was something where our friends, my friends and I, we've been talking about this a lot lately. Um, the, the one that most recently we talked about quite a bit was Ahmad Aubrey, who was on a run um, and, you know, on video in February and was killed by some white men. And the thing about that that was so hard was because it happened in February, but most people, including us, didn't find out about it until maybe March. And then from there, it didn't gain momentum until around April when it got, it got like a lot of social media momentum. And then everybody started going, wait, hold on, there's a video. Clearly, you can clearly see what happened. And these people aren't arrested and why? Um, and it took till April and it took a public outcry and it took people going on runs in his, in his honor um, and posting that to social media and having the voice that people have now on social media, which is the one way an average person can have a voice collectively for them to be arrested. That's what it took. It wasn't just the fact that he was an innocent person on a run who was gunned down and, and his life was taken for no reason. Um, people were saying, well, they did it because they thought that he fit the description of somebody who was um, in the area robbing some houses or something like that. Still does not mean that your life should be taken. It just, it just doesn't. I, I don't understand how the two need to converge into that, but even, even that wasn't even true. So fitting the description, you're not a police officer. It's not your job to find somebody um, and, and kill them because they fit the description. Now, and it was interesting in that case, it wasn't a police officer and it still took that long for them to be arrested. And then we were also talking about um, Brianna Taylor, um, who was gunned down in her own house, in her own house by police officers by mistake. <laughs> and she's still, there's still no justice for her. Those police officers are, are still, you know, going to bed peacefully at night and waking up in the morning with their families. Um, and, and, you know, that one is, that one's hard because it's a black woman, you know, and I feel like it didn't get enough attention. Um, but now it's definitely gaining attention because of what happened to George Floyd. And people aren't going to forget her name until I think something happens um, there for her and her family and justice that they deserve. And it's, it's hard because when you look back on all of the stuff that has happened through the years with this, these same kind of cases, um, you know, you go on with your life and you assume and you hope that the right thing has been done. But, you know, because of this, I can go back and see that with Philando Castile, who was actually murdered in Minneapolis, near Minneapolis here, that, that police officer, there was no conviction. Um, I can go back as far as Tamir Rice, who was a, a young boy who was playing in the park and he was gunned down. There was no conviction there. Um, and it, it starts to, I mean, I talked about my bandwidth earlier. And it's the way that I view this is that when this, when this incident happened with George Floyd, I felt like black people, we, we just don't have enough bandwidth to, to really hold on to this anymore. We, I mean, people have been talking, been, been screaming, the top of their lungs, the best they can, like I said, through social media. It's one of the ways that 
any person can have a voice, but your voice, if it's not heard through all these different avenues, it gets to be overwhelming. It gets to be exhausting. It, it's, it's beyond hurtful. It, it can turn to anger and frustration in an instant. And I understand it. It's, it was back to back to back to back. It was too much. It is too much. And I, I just think that, you know, that's just basically what happened here in Minneapolis. It was too much for everybody to, to bear. And what I love to see and what I have been seeing is it's not just black voices now. It's everyone coming together and saying, okay, yes, we understand. We see it. We understand why Black Lives Matter. Now we understand why you say that. We understand why we make the distinction between Black Lives Matter and not just all lives matter. It's because right now Black lives are under attack. And that's why we have to say it in case you forgot. And so um, it, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't scary for me when this all happened. It was terrifying. I live in Minneapolis. I live very close to the city. My husband works downtown. And so we made a point to live in a neighborhood that was pretty close to the city so that he could come home quickly um, and be with our family when he was done with his workday. Um, and there was a couple nights where um, we didn't sleep. And I'm not exaggerating, we didn't sleep. Um, I always thought to myself, in those moments where I didn't sleep that it, it'd be okay if it was me and Patrick, my husband, it, it would be okay. I would, we would find a way we would make it through. Um, but I couldn't help but feel that I personally was making this house dangerous because what had happened and transpired was that there was many reports of white supremacists coming to town, kind of trying to jump off of what was going on here. And I don't know, capitalize on it or, or what it is. I'm not part of that organization, clearly. I have no idea. All I know is that white supremacists clearly by nature do not care for me. I'm a black woman, right? And in this house, I am the blackest of women. <laughs> my, my children um, are mixed and are very light-skinned. And I, I, my, I am the most black. I'm the one that's been asked if I'm their mother. You know, I, I understand how it looks. And if it was just Patrick and I, we would figure it out and we would make it through. But when you become a mother and what, the, what my children do for me and, and, and how I feel the need to protect them um, is, is something that I can't explain how uh, primal it feels if somebody was trying to harm me or my family or them, of course. Um, and it was, I mean, terrifying is not even enough of a description. Um, I was, I was so scared that something would happen to us. Um, and, um, obviously things have calmed down quite a bit as far as that goes now, but, um, to have to be in that position in 2020, um, is really sad. I'm, I'm very, very hurt that the thought of racism being something that people fight to keep as a part of the American fabric is very hurtful. Um, and, and that's, and that, that hurt is just, it's just, it's just in the air here. Like it's just palpable. Like it's still here. 
Um, and it's, it, it shows itself in anger sometimes, you know, and it shows it, it shows itself in ways that people don't understand. But, um, when somebody is attacking everything about who you are and what you love about yourself, um, almost wanting you to, to not love that about yourself. Like, are you telling me not to love myself? Cause I'm black. Are you telling me not to care about my, the color of my skin? Are you telling me not to, to fight for what's right? Um, it's, it's hard. So. Wow. Wow. I mean, I can say this. Let me just really answer it. Yeah. Um, my daughter is going to be six in September. She's five. And so, you know, we don't live, we live in the city, but we don't live in the parts that were really um, affected so much with the rioting and the looting and all of it. But I do need her to know what happened. Yeah. We've driven around a little bit. And so I finally explained it to her last night fully what happened. And um, she was amazing, very elementary. But, but if he wasn't terrifying anyone, why, why did they kill him? It's a great question. I mean, her little word terrifying, thought it was mm-hmm. cute that, that she was, if he wasn't scaring anyone, why did they kill him? Like, not that that's a reason either. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about it, she said, why are they destroying our city? And I said, if, what if you were trying to get mommy and daddy's attention and we weren't paying attention to you, what would you do? And she's like, well, I would talk louder. I'm like, what if we still didn't listen to you? She was like, I would scream. And I was like, what if we still didn't listen? She was like, I would be really sad. I would start crying. And I was like, I know. And what if we still didn't listen? I'm like, so what if it went on all day long and we just didn't listen to you? Mm-hmm. She was like, I would be so upset. I would, I don't know. And I was like, would you throw a fit, a tantrum? She's like, yeah, I probably would. I'd probably throw my toys at you. And I was like, there it is. that's kind of what happened. And then we would notice you because you would be making a mess. And we'd say, Sydney, Sydney, what's wrong? And we would stand with you and try to calm you down and listen to you. Mm-hmm. So I said, that's kind of what happened with black people around the city. Definitely the first night. And um, people, I think, have realized what was going on finally and that what Black Lives Matter means. And they were like, all right, you're right. We stand with you. And a lot of people in the city are doing a great job of standing with black people and understanding the cause. And so, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about just breaking down some of the, the systemic racism and the, the unconscious discrimination that happens and the implicit bias that, that can happen. But I think, I think that's where a lot of the misunderstanding comes from where at least the things that I've been hearing or seeing in the past few days where where maybe people, white people are saying, oh, well, I would never consciously discriminate or I would never consciously do anything, you know, because of someone's skin color. But yet there's so much that happens unconsciously because of the society that we live in, because of the culture, because of the systems in place. Um, can you Can you talk at all about how maybe you've experienced some of that in your life or maybe like you mentioned earlier, just from friends or or other people that have shared their experiences with you? Um, sure. I can try to collect my thoughts. Um, 
you know, my husband has been trying to figure out how to say something. And I, I told him not saying anything is the wrong thing. Right. So as long as I know that you're standing with me, it doesn't matter to me what you say or where you, where you jump off from. And I know his, I know him, but he's not a social media person. So that's the only way you say things nowadays. Right. Um, and it, one of the things that really resonated with him was it's not that, you know, white people, white people don't struggle. Of course, white people struggle. It's not that, you know, they have hardships in their life. Of course they have hardships in their life that they have to overcome. It's just that being black is never one of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's, that's one thing that I was like, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, I've only been black. I've only known my life and my, my struggle. Um, and like I talked about earlier, becoming a certain age, I'm being 40. You, you just understand it more. You look back on your life and it's not like my life's anywhere, anywhere near being over, No, but I'm just saying you have a way, you have a lot to stand back and look on when you turn 40. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can see some situations differently. Okay. Well, that was definitely harder for me, um, than it was for somebody else who wasn't me, who maybe wasn't black. Um, I was talking to a friend earlier today who I ran college track with and, um, and uh, he, he lives in Denver and he was just kind of checking up on me. I've had a couple of friends from my past check up on me. Not only it's like, I don't even know if they're calling because of my cancer diagnosis or for what's going on in Minneapolis or both. But, you know, here we are and I'm appreciating, you know, talking to people of my past. And we talked about both. But when we talked about uh, racial, racial issues, I said, um, keep this in mind. So I said, how did you go to college? How did you get to college? And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, how did you pay for it? How, how did it come about? He's like, my dad paid for my college. And I was like, all right. And I was like, and our paths crossed in college and we had a great time together. We got to know each other. Um, cause he was on my team mm -hmm. and I'm like, do you know how I got there? And he was like, well, not exactly. And I said, I was a seven time state champion in track and multiple sprints in track, mm -hmm. um, over the course of three years. And I was like the fastest girl in the state back in 1998. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that rhymed. And uh, <laughs> I had, I was the best and I caught the eye of the coach who then offered me a full ride to, uh, university of Northern Iowa. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's no way I could have gone to school out of state. Um, if I didn't have a full ride scholarship, I definitely would have had to go to school in state and had to find the most inexpensive way if I decided I was going to go to college to fund that. And I would probably still be paying for it. Mm -hmm. So I, while I'm grateful for my position of getting a full ride scholarship, I had to run a pretty hard race to get in the same position of him just because his dad could pay for it. My parents had no way, absolutely no way. We have no generational wealth. Mm -hmm. I love my life. I love my mom and dad. I love what they did for me, but we don't have that kind of wealth. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of it was that I knew everything about him and his family. And this is not a knock against him. Um, it's just, I understood his position in life mm -hmm. and he had no clue of my position in life. So scholarship checks always run out at the end of the year and track season runs over 
because the conference championship in the spring is always past the school year. So you're always living off of nothing if you don't have any money. And since you're not allowed to work when you're in full ride, I, I didn't really have any money. So when I asked my dad and mom for money, I would get like 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, okay, at the time it cost me 15 bucks to fill my tank. I'd kind of maybe fill it halfway. I'd use the rest as I could for the rest of the week for food. And I'd be begging for scraps again the next week mm-hmm. for my mom and dad, you know, and versus him, it was obviously, you know, he got a ton of money from his parents when needed. He always had something to fall back on. And I knew that about him and that's okay. It's just that I, as a black person, live in a world where I'm often the minority. And I know a lot about the white people that I'm surrounded by. I know a lot about their families and how they operate. And a lot of times they just assume that because I'm in the same position as them, that it's like the same story behind. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's not. I, like I said, was, I had to be the best in the state of Minnesota to even go to the same school as you. And, you know, to, to have that opportunity. And I, and I, and it's not like it's done at that moment because I always have to be the best in everything I do. If I'm going for a job, I have to be the best of the best to even get in the door. And it's, it's, it's harder for me to come in knowing that my, my skin color is something that people see, knowing that it's going to create some unknown biases about how they feel about me. And I get that's something with everybody, but it's definitely something looking back on my own personal life, I see a lot. So, um, yeah. Wow. And is that something where you said you, you think that maybe he didn't know as much about your life, but you felt you, like you knew his, is that something where, where you just feel like people are maybe afraid to ask or don't know what to say or are not as you know, don't want to talk about those things or where do you think that comes from? Just, it's, I mean, it's not a knock on him because I think he's a great person. So it's just that I don't think that white people, assume, they just assume, especially the ones that are friends with me, assume that I'm in the same, I, I have the same position in life as they do. Yeah. That I don't experience things differently than they do. And I, and I, I appreciate that in some sense that they look at me and they're like, well, I love Deb. She obviously is on the same level as me, like we're friends, we're, we're doing the same thing, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but it's not. For example, when we were in CrossFit and we were competitive at the same time, mm-hmm. and granted, I only did it for three years because I started when I was, I started competing at the games when I was 31. Um, so I was a little bit older than most of you guys. Um, and I knew that I needed to stop at some point because I did want to have kids mm-hmm. for too long. Yeah. Um, so I knew I didn't have a long time before I was done with my competitive career in CrossFit. I knew I wanted to do it. And I knew that I was good. And I had some bad years. I had my t- 2011 was not a good year for me. And I fought back in 2012. And I did really well for myself, mm-hmm. considering I'm really bad at swimming. And everybody knows that now. It's like my big thing. Um, and I was a spirit of the games winner. I think I was, I I don't want to misplace. I so bad. I don't remember my place. I think I was like 13th or 12th or something like that, that year. And I mean, it's a good place for the games and I was consistently good. I mean, I remember getting fifth in the worldwide open in like 2013. So I was definitely somebody that was possibly making a, a play for the, for the podium. Yeah. And 
ask me how many sponsors I had. How many? Zero. Wow. I had not. And that was 2011, 12, 13 when, you know, by 2011, that's when the sponsors were really entering the field, you know, so there was. Reebok entered then. Yeah. And um, no one, not one, not one sponsor. And I realized that there's a lot of reasons I can go back. Well, I wasn't a podium finisher and well, I wasn't, you know, as good as so-and-so, but not only did everyone ahead of me have sponsors, which made sense, but everyone behind me had sponsors and everyone who didn't even make it to the games who I beat like in the open when I got fifth in the world had sponsors, not everyone, but a lot of them. And when that happens, the only thing you can do is think like, like what, what is it? Yeah. Is it, is it okay? Okay. So, and it's not only being black, but it's being a black woman, you know, it's like, so, and I'm not trying to knock on people, but it is what it is. It's just the truth. So my husband and I funded, he was, I I remember joking once somebody asked who my sponsor was, and I said, my husband, because we spent a lot of money Mm -hmm. on something that we felt was worthy of our time, because I felt like it created a legacy for me to to hang my hat on for my kids or whoever. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in my family um, were very proud of that time of my life and it, it made me proud to do it. So I did it. Wow. So. And it's not, I mean, that's, that's fascinating too, because it's not like you were, you were like an athlete who was in the shadows or like quiet, like you had outstanding performances and like you were spirit of the games winner. Like you were someone that was very held up highly in the community while you were competing. So I think that makes it even more, I think, surprising that you wouldn't have had sponsors or companies reaching out to you. Yeah, no, it's, uh, um, and that's what I mean when I expected that I I was surprised by it, I guess I could say, but in a way I also expected it. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it, it was still, it still didn't make it easier. It was, it was hard. It definitely gave me a little chip on my shoulder and maybe it gave me some edge in some of my, some of my events. If you saw me go off and beat somebody, it's maybe cause I was channeling my anger. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it does, it's, it's not lost on me. And know that people will probably bring it up that uh, that CrossFit HQ hasn't said anything about this whole situation. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. What is it? I mean, you're still doing CrossFit, correct? Sort of. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess these days with all the gyms being closed too, it makes it a little bit. That made it hard. And um, I, I get extremely tired yeah. from chemo and... <clears throat> It's just, I, I feel like my body is not mine anymore. Um, so, um, a lot of, a lot of changes. Yeah. CrossFit is pretty hard right now. Well, I guess, you know, you talked to your experience, um, sort of being a black athlete at the CrossFit games, but what about the CrossFit community as a whole? I mean, it is predominantly a white community. What, what have you noticed in the CrossFit community as a whole, other than obviously you just mentioned about CrossFit HQ, not not really saying anything on this issue yet. Do you mean what have I experienced about CrossFit community now or versus what do you mean? Just in general, like 
over your years of being part of the CrossFit community, have you, I mean, what has that been like for you being that um, it's predominantly white and yeah. it's, it's been interesting. I mean, I think at first when I first, you know, jumped into CrossFit, I obviously recognized that I was one of a few, um, black people, not only in my own gym, um, but then on the, on the world stage, um, I, I definitely recognized it. And, you know, like I said, I, I was, I was used to that, um, in many parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to just keep my head down and just do the best I could. Um, what I experienced from that point, um, honest to God, uh, everyone at CrossFit HQ, when there was more people at CrossFit HQ were amazing to me. Um, everyone from the top from Greg, Greg Glassman. I remember talking with him after my 2012 spirit of the games, win. he like wanted to like help me swim, (laughs) (laughs) you would get through that ocean fast. You'd be on the podium. I was like, (laughs) great, let's do it. Uh, you know, down to Dave Castor, I remember um, in 2011 when I did not make it through the ocean and I remember like, like crying, like into his shoulder. Yeah. He, he was, he, he actually embraced me and I, you know, um, and he's always been great to me on a personal level and all of them, I mean, down to media or the people that, you know, corralled us, mm-hmm. you know, um, athlete personnel. Um, they've always been great to me and I've appreciated that. I felt that I was highly respected in a way that I've always wanted to be, that I felt like I should be mm-hmm. for my efforts and for what I accomplished. Um, that being said, it, it, that's why it hurts to not see anybody say anything. Um, I know that CrossFit put down, took down their social media for a while Mm-hmm. Um, and then they put it back up and I understand that they have some sort of a games going on at the end of August. Um, and I know that's probably their focus right now, but a lot of people have been able to drop their focus and at least say something. Like I said, the right thing to do is to say something. The wrong thing to do would be to say nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's so easy just to say something, then you made a, a point to not say something. Like mm-hmm. it, it was harder to not say something I feel like at this point for big companies or yeah. businesses than it is to, to just say something. I said that right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's noticeable. Yeah. And it, 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 for lack of better terms, it hurts my feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, I know how they feel about me and all the black athletes that, um, not only the, the, the famous ones, but the ones that, you know, the everyday black athletes that I've been connected to since I was CrossFit famous or whatever. Um, and they, you know, connect with me and I know that I'm inspired by them as much as they are by me at this point in my life. I'm just an average CrossFitter. Um, I, I don't, I don't plan on making it to any sort of CrossFit competition. So I'm in line with them. Yeah. And so for them to look up at me, it's like, it's very humbling, but you know, I'm, I'm the same as you right now. I'm just trying to <laughs> get a workout today, you know? Um, but you know, it connected me to them and there's a lot in the community who are black CrossFitters who are proud of it and proud to be part of CrossFit and they are hurting. Their voices aren't as loud as mine. They don't have a platform to talk like with you and on this podcast. And, 
I feel like I'm speaking for them when I say their, their feelings are hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel like for many years, they, they're supporting the CrossFit methodology. They're supporting everything about CrossFit. And for them not to say anything on um, the only way you can really speak out right now, which is social media, it speaks, it's the silence is loud. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's really, uh, I hope they, I hope they change that and say something. But CrossFit doesn't like to be told what to do. Right. (laughs) This is not the moment to have that kind of stance. Right. I know that. It's hard when when then the silence leaves people wondering, you know, that don't, you know, like you said, you know a lot of those people personally and you know how they feel, but most of the CrossFit community does not know them. And and so it leaves them wondering, you know, what what their feelings are. Yep. Um, Now, I know we talked a little bit earlier um, and I think, just about how, you know, it makes, it makes you uncomfortable when people are going to you saying, what can, like white people are going to you saying, what can I do or what should I do? And Mm -hmm. and feeling like, you know, we want to do something about this, but what do we do? Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I think, you know, I don't have kids, but one thing that I think a lot of people have been asking about is how do they, how do they bring this in a conversation with their kids or how do they think intentionally about the things they're exposing their kids to as they're growing up? to try to prevent them from having certain biases or unconscious biases as they grow up. Um, are there things that you do with your kids or ways that you approach this topic with them? Um, I think that for me, um, and with a lot of things like this, I think people think they have to be, do some grand gestures and, you know, get a library of books Um, even if you're not a reader, you got to start reading now. And I mean, obviously it's great to be a reader. Um, and, and honestly, that's, that's where I start. Um, and it's easy when you have kids because the reading is not as hard. (laughs) That's true. And I would, if I open this door back, this is our spare bedroom. But if I open this door back here, I mean, books are overflowing in our house. Like we have so many books that it's the one thing that, and you, if you ever become a parent, it's people give you toys and it's like, it's, it's coming out of your house. <laughs> you know, it's insane. So I always say, please just get books and yeah. we still have books coming out of the windows, but I prefer that. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten some amazing books over the years that, um, just through like, honestly searching through, um, our library, mm-hmm. um, just, we go to the library all the time and I found some amazing books um, that start very small mm-hmm. about the simplest of concepts um, that actually is how to make sure that your kids are aware of their differences and appreciate their differences and appreciate the differences in others and how important that is to the fabric of this whole world. Cause it's, it's obviously a simple concept that I think, think people would be like, yes, I agree with that. Right. Um, I absolutely 100% agree with that. But at some point, like, it stops when you're an adult for some people. And it, it, and it just like, I, I don't know. It's like, so you've, you've understood the concept of differences and, and understand that people are of value. But then at some point, that stops and now people are, are not of value. When does that happen? You know, um, and that's, it, I don't want to get too political, but the elementary s- steps of it start young. And so we have, like, I want to say like 10 books 
not specifically on racism, um, but about all these large concepts about how to not divide people and how to appreciate all people and how to um, speak up when you see something wrong is a, is a huge one that, um, that happens in a lot. It's a theme that happens in a lot of children's books. And I think it's just easy to, to start there. Um, and I'm not afraid to talk to my kids about things. I, I have to. Um, there's been about five times that I can count. Yeah, five times that um, some, from when Sydney, my oldest, was an infant, mm-hmm. that I've been asked if I'm her mother, assumed mm-hmm. that I'm babysitting, or flat out just like just asked where my where my kids are when they're standing next to me. Because people assume my kids are black and they assume their kids are, or their, their parents are white because my kids are very light skinned. Mm -hmm. Um, Surprised me too when they came out. Um, But I love them for everything they are. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. It's just those microaggressions that I then have to explain to my children that it's, it's probably not okay that someone said that to you that, you know, asked you if that was your mommy, because how is that? possible and it's like to her the concept of me not being her mother how rude right Um, so it's just those little things that because of who they are because their dad is white and because I'm black we have a leg up on the fact that we are talking about things maybe earlier than other families would think to but it doesn't mean that we should be the only families talking about it I think every family is tasked with once you create a human you have to create a human that's going to be, it it happens so much sooner than you think Mm -hmm. that you need to start talking about it and making sure that you're creating somebody that is inclusive of all, you know, types of people. And also it's the hugest thing for me is to speak up. Mm -hmm. If you see something wrong, Mm -hmm. you see it, don't brush it off. If it's happening to your sister, of course, but if it's happening to your friend, absolutely. And if it's happening to someone that you don't even know, Absolutely. At all times you speak up. It's not enough to say you have a black friend or a a brown friend or an Asian friend or any of that. It's not enough. Um, I think really immersing yourself in the culture Mm -hmm. intently um, and trying to understand who they are, where they came from. Um, People have different senses of humor in those cultures. People have different ways of eating in those cultures. Like, it's, it sounds like it, it wouldn't, but it, it's true. Like even, um, even my own friend who is a black American, I'm, I could technically call myself a Caribbean American. Mm-hmm. Parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. And so when we met in um, high school, like I would go to her house and be like, oh man, this food is so good and delicious and different. And she'd come to my house and she'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm coming over every night. So even <laughs> just between us, like we had appreciated the difference in our culture, even though we're both black. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I pre- and I appreciated and understand, understood everything about her and her struggle very early on. And same for her with me. Um, and, you know, my husband, who is a white guy from Iowa, Um, I think for him, it's been, he's had a great experience being a part of my family and seeing the difference in my family and the way that we do things. Mm -hmm. Um, he's gotten close to some of my friends and then gotten really into, um, understanding the black community a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, and I understand his family 
I never grew up like him on a farm or any of that in Iowa. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just saying that it's, it's really important that you don't just have friends, but you actually dive in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also easier and less daunting than, you know, writing a dissertation on um, how black America has helped build you know, this country. I understand that's daunting and that's the cliff notes version that people want because it's a lot that hasn't been told. But start there. Just start with, if you don't have friends of a different race, you need to, it's, it's, it's you need to. You need to go out and find them. You, you have to. And if you notice something that's different between you and your friend and how they're treated in certain situations where you're maybe in the same situation as them. Maybe if, if you guys have the same uh, job at work mm -hmm. and if you notice, you should say something. They shouldn't have to be the one screaming, Hey, it's not fair that this person gets this and I don't, you should scream with them. Mm -hmm. You know, it shouldn't just be, you know, people who are minorities or oppressed having to do all that work when you know it's wrong too. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Kind of how I'd finish that, I suppose. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, I normally finish the podcast with three questions. We can run through them if you want quickly. Um, they're just general questions about health. So the first one is the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. It can be you know, very broad, physical, mental, spiritual health. Oh, so you're asking. Okay. Yeah, so the, three, three things. Um, one is I tell my kids I love them at random times. It's, it's fun for me to find the most random times, mm -hmm. catching them off guard it's and seeing the reaction. <laughs> oh, I love you too, mommy. Uh, uh, that has a, that, that makes me happy in my saddest times always never stops. Um, the other thing is, um, I think it's all centered around my family, um, but because we, we've been quarantined together for a yeah, while. That's what it's all about anyways, right? Uh, dance parties. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I think that um, for us, I think just Patrick and I have always been just really inspired by music. And I think we always like to instill that in our kids and it's definitely been pretty easy. So um, we tend to have a lot of dance parties in this house. Um, so that's another thing. Um, and the third would be, I, I know I'm not a competitive CrossFitter anymore. Um, but I have to move my body at least four to five times a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though I know my intensity levels are not anywhere near as far as weight I'm lifting or as fast as I'm moving as where they used to be, I have to, excuse me, I always have to appreciate where I'm at in life and always give myself a pat on the back, knowing that that's not who Deborah was. <laughs> I mean, I'm not moving like Deborah at 31, yeah. Deborah like 40. And, and I, I remember what that felt like. And I just have to always tell myself, she's there, I'm here, and I'm amazing for doing what I just did. It's okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I definitely have to challenge myself in my own way um, at least four to five times a week. So I love that. I have to tell myself that too, because it's very different nowadays. Yeah. Um, okay. What is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you haven't quite implemented it yet or something maybe you're working on? Um, I think that honestly, um, eating less meat 
And that sounds weird because I'm such a carnivore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been like a misomorph. I I feel like my body's always craved meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think for me, um, and not, not like my just general personal health, but for my mental health, I just know that the meat industry is having issues with how it's affecting the environment. And mm-hmm. I recognize the footprint and I'm not, I'm not trying to completely become a vegan because I just don't know if I can personally do that, but I definitely need to do my part to try to lessen my meat eating. I I can't eat a meal or I I feel like I haven't eaten a meal unless there's meat in it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually started following some vegan chefs on Instagram and I've got some cookbooks and I'm like, I'll start with some lunches. Yeah. And that's where I think that will help my, I think it will probably will help my physical health more than I realize, but also it's just my mental health. So I, I've, it's been weighing on me to yeah. do that. So very cool. Um, all right. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? Um, good living, huh? Um, uh, it's simple for me is to always know that, um, I have people in my life that I can lean on emotionally, physically. Um, I, I've been lucky enough to, to meet my husband, Patrick, and um, 16 years ago. And ever since I've met him, my life has been better for it um, just because he – he meets me where like where he, where I end, he picks up and same for me with him. Like it's, we have such different experiences that we mesh together really well. Um, and you know what we've created together, my, my little family, um, that to me is just a good life just to know that everybody here is safe and happy. Um, and that we've done our best to raise our kids to go off, go off in this world and do, you know, good things. Um, that makes me happy. I mean, I don't mean to leave out my actual, like my sisters and my brothers and, but like, I, <laughs> um, they're important too. They're important to me, but at this moment in this quarantine life, um, that's all I can think about right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your willingness to share your voice and share your perspective here. Um, and I know, you know, with everything that you're going through, like you said, you have very little bandwidth. So I appreciate you doing this because I know it's it's emotionally exhausting. Um, but I think that, you know, sharing your perspective is really valuable for everyone listening today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it as well. Thank you all so much for listening into this conversation. Obviously, it was a super important conversation to start here. And I always like to highlight some of my personal takeaways. So here are some of the things that I've been thinking about since this conversation with Deb. Number one is about the importance of speaking up. I think that this message comes through loud and clear. And as Americans, it's all of our responsibility to take action to end systemic racism. Yes, speaking up can come through social media posts and the sharing of information, but maybe more importantly, it's how we speak up for the things we see happening in our day-to-day lives. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but it's so important to say something and acknowledge when you see something that's wrong and talk about it. That's the only way we're going to learn and do better as a country. My second takeaway was about the importance of being curious about people who are different from you. 
As Deb talks about, it's important not to just know people who are different from you as acquaintances or coworkers, but really get to know them. Be curious, ask questions, and appreciate your differences. My third takeaway was about the importance of taking small steps every day. Deb has so much on her plate right now, more than any person should have to deal with it once. And I loved her perspective about just taking small steps one day at a time and how she learned that mentality from her days of competing at the CrossFit Games. I think the same applies for our country in changing systemic racism. It's overwhelming to think about all at once. And it may seem like taking small steps right now, like having difficult conversations, posting on social media, or making a donation are not making a big impact but it's more about the cumulative effect of these small steps over time. So if we all keep taking these small steps to educate ourselves, to have conversations, to speak up when we see something wrong, to understand people who are different than us, then years from now, maybe we'll be living in a much different world. I hope you had some great takeaways from this conversation too, and then it sparked some reflection and some discussion in your own life. 